Volume Four, Chapter Six of *The Old Manor House*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julia Lenarden. *The Old Manor House* by Charlotte Turner Smith, Volume Four, Chapter Six. If Orlando had known Monimia was in safety. If he had known where, after this cruel absence, where he might find her, and assure her of the sentiments of an heart more fondly than ever devoted to her, all the cruel circumstances that had happened in his absence would have been supportable. But when, in addition to the death of his father, and the dispersion of his family, his loss of the Rayland estate, and the ruin of his brother, for, now being utterly undone, and unable to carry on the lawsuits he had begun, he had for some time disappeared, and no one knew what had become of him. When to all these distracting certainties was added his fear of finding Monimia, or finding her innocent, lovely, and devoted to him as he left her, he was no longer able to check the violence of his apprehension, nor could he, for some hours after awaking from his short and disturbed sleep, collect his thoughts enough to form any plan for his future conduct. Two things, however, were immediately necessary. One was to find some method of tracing his lost monimia, and the other to find the means of subsisting, not only without being a burden to his mother, whose income was so very small, but to endeavour, if possible, to make hers and his sister's situation more comfortable. This he knew the slender pay of an ensign would not enable him to do, and while he knew that nothing could be more dreadful to his mother than the idea of his going abroad again, he felt that few means of passing his time would to him be so disagreeable that as of remaining unoccupied, and disarmed as he was by his parole, while he yet called and considered himself a soldier. He at length determined to inquire how far, as his commission was given him, he could dispose of it and if that could be done, to put the money it would produce into some business. But even this arrangement was secondary to his ardent desire to gain some intelligence of Monimia. He wrote as soon as he arose in the morning to the relation of the person with whom she lived at Winchester, entreating a direction to that person, and assuring her to whom he wrote, that his inquiry was not meant to do any injury, but rather might produce some advantage to the person under inconvenient circumstances. He then, after some deliberation, determined to write to Mrs. Leonard, or, as she was now called, Mrs. Roker, and as he had now no longer anything to fear from the resentment of his benefactress, he openly avowed to Mrs. Roker the purpose of his inquiry, informing her that, if her niece was unmarried, and still retained for him her former affection, he intended to offer her his hand. Having thus taken all the means which his anxiety immediately suggested, he joined his mother and sisters at breakfast with some degree of apparent composure, and gave them, as he found his mother now better able to bear it, a sketch of his adventures upon the road, at which they were so much affected that he soon found it necessary to drop the conversation, and saying he should walk out till dinner, he took his way to a coffee-house much frequented by military men, near St. James, for he hoped to hear something of Warwick, as well as to learn whether the general, whom he dared not mention to his mother, lest it should occasion inquiries about Isabella which he could not answer, 
had consoled himself with some other young woman for his cruel mortification in regard to Isabella, and revenged himself by disinheriting his nephew for the loss of his intended bride. He met several of his old acquaintances, one of whom very willingly gave him all the information he wanted about his commission, but told him that he could not, he thought, dispose of it without applying to General Tracy, from whose hands he had received it. This Orlando determined to do, and as he was impatient to be at some certainty, he went immediately to his house in Grosvenor Place. It happened that the general, who was now almost always a martyr to the gout, had given orders to be denied to everybody who might chance to call, except two persons whom he named, and for one of whom the man who opened the door, and who had only lately come into the house, mistook Orlando, who was therefore ushered upstairs, where, in a magnificent room, the general sat in a great chair, supported by pillows, and his limbs wrapped in flannel. Orlando was much altered, and the general was near-sighted, so he was obliged to approach and to announce himself. Forgetting for a moment his disabled limbs, Tracy almost started out of his chair, but then recollecting probably that a man of fashion should never suffer himself to appear discomposed at anything, he recovered himself, and coldly desired Orlando to sit down. Orlando, affected by seeing a man whom he had last seen as his guest of his father, gave, in a mild and low voice, into a little history of his adventures, the parole he had given, which precluded him from serving during the present war, and his wish, therefore, to transfer his commission to some one who might not be under the same disadvantages. General Tracy heard him with repulsive indifference, and then said, "'Well, sir, the commission is yours, and you are perfectly at liberty to keep or to dispose of it. I am very far from meaning to trouble you with my advice. But as your expectations of Mrs. Rayland's fortunes are all disappointed, I should have supposed a profession might have been found useful to you.' However, sir, you are the best judge. The commission is yours. I am sorry I am too much indisposed to have the pleasure of your company longer, and I wish you a good day. He then rang, and his valet appearing, bade him open the door. Orlando, thus dismissed, retired in anger which he had no means of venting, and went back to the coffee-house, where his friend waited for him, to whom he forbore, however, to speak of Tracy's behaviour, because he could not but feel that if he believed him, as he probably did, concerned the elopement of Isabella with Warwick, he had some grounds for his resentment. A resentment which, when Orlando reflected on his humiliation, and his being now tormented by bodily infirmities, he was too generous not to forgive. His friend, a lieutenant in the fifty-first, now went with him to the office of an agent to treat about his commission, and as they went, related to him that it was believed at the war office Warwick had perished at sea, as there was never an instance of a man being missing for so many months, and that, had he been taken prisoner by an American or French privateer, and carried to some of their places of rendezvous, he would before now have written home, or he would have been exchanged. This appeared to be but too probable. But still Orlando, in recollecting how he had been situated himself, entertained a faint hope that they might yet hear of his friend and his sister, though the dangers and difficulties to which the latter might have been exposed made him tremble. Having put his business in the proper train, he returned home, meditating as he went 
on all the strange and disagreeable occurrences that had happened since he used to traverse these streets with Warwick, who had lodges in Bond Street. All the scenes he had passed through arose in lively succession in his mind, and that for the first time since his landing in England, for the shocks he received on his arrival at Rayland Hall, and by hearing of the death of his father, had for a while absorbed all other recollections. He now considered that when his commission was disposed of, his whole fortune would be only between three or four hundred pounds. Yet, with the sanguine spirit of a young man, which his former severe disappointments had not checked, he believed that, with a sum so moderate, he could, by dint of perseverance and industry, he could find some reputable employment, by which he might not only be enabled to assist his mother, but to keep a wife, as he was resolved the moment he could find Monimia, to marry her. And in this only he thought he might be forgiven for not consulting his mother, to his duty and affection towards whom he never meant that any other attachment should be injurious. He had not yet had time to talk to Selina of the lawsuit, which he heard Philip had instituted for the recovery of the Rayland estate. But he had in the evening an opportunity of talking about it to Selina, and heard that it now languished, partly for the want of money, and partly through Philip's neglect, who had of late again disappeared, and therefore nothing was likely to be made of the suit. Orlando inquired against whom and on what grounds it was begun, and learned, though Selina did not very clearly understand the terms, that it was against the reverend body who claimed the estate, one of whom, Dr. Hollyburn, had administered as executor, because the will nominated that office the dean of the diocese for the time being, to which the doctor had succeeded a few days only before Mrs. Rayland's death, and that there was not only a suit at common law, but in chancery. As there was reason to believe that there was another will entirely in his favour, which had either been secreted or destroyed, Orlando determined to attempt discovering this, and got a recommendation from his friend the lieutenant, for he was too much disgusted by the reception he met with from Mr. Woodford to trouble him again, to a young attorney, before whom he laid the affair, and who gave him great encouragement to pursue it. But the occupation in which this engaged him, or in which he was engaged by the sale of his commission, that was now within a few days of being completed, could not for a moment detach his mind from those fears which continually haunted him from Monimia. He waited with anxiety for the answer he expected from Winchester, which he had hoped to have, as he had very earnestly pressed for it, by the return of the post. But that, and another, and another post arrived without any letter, and he wrote again, waited again three days, and was again disappointed of an answer. He now determined to go down himself, and find out the woman from whom Selina had received the information of Monimia's removal. But the day on which he had hired a horse, and was on the point of setting out for that place, he was visited by a man of between fifty and sixty, who sent in his name in great form as Mr. Roker. If a painter had occasion to put upon his canvas a figure that should give an horrible idea of the worst, meanest, and most obnoxious passions, and to represent the most detestable character in pandemonium, where, on the brow, villainy sits enjoying the misery of its occasions, where every rascal vice, concealed by cowardice and cunning, 
are mingled with arrogance, malice, and cruelty, where a nose, the rival of Bardolph's, depends over a mouth grinning horribly a ghastly smile, and scornful eyes, askance, seem to be watching, with inverted looks, the birth of chicanery in the brain. This fiend-like wretch would have been a fine study. His shambling figure appeared to have been repaired with straw and rags, since it had suffered depredations on a well-earned gibbet. A figure more adapted to the purpose of scaring crows was never exhibited in former days as Guy Vaux, the Pope, or the Pretender. Orlando was somewhat surprised to behold this strange being, who, strutting up close to him, put his nose almost in his face, and then, in a sonorous voice, said, "'Your name, sir?' is Somerive?' "'I suppose you know it is,' replied Orlando, "'since you come to seek me by it.' "'You wrote, sir, to my nephew's wife, Mrs. Rachel Roker?' "'Well, sir, I have expected Mrs. Rachel Roker would have answered my letter.' "'No, sir. We make it a rule never to put our hands into anything. We desire to know, sir, your reasons for writing.' I call, sir, in behalf of Mrs. Rachel Roker. You ask after a young woman, sir, whom she kept out of charity. Now, sir, though we never do give answers to matters so irrelevant, my client, that is my niece, Mrs. Rachel Roker, does hereby inform you that she, the said Rachel... Orlando, anxious as he was, and trembling in the expectation of hearing something of Monimia, could not check his indignation and impatience. "'Your niece, your client, what is all this to me?' said he. "'Sir,' cried the fiend, "'have patience, if you please. I go on in this matter according to the due course, and such as I always observe in all my business, whether it relates to Sir John Winnerton Weasel, baronet, my very worthy client, or any other. Now, sir, nay,' Sir, seeing Orlando about to speak, nay, sir, hear me, and when I have done, sir, you shall speak in turn. You will be pleased, then, said Orlando, to be brief, as patience is not my forte. He felt much disposed to prove this assertion by turning the fellow downstairs, but recollecting that he might thus lose all trace of Monimia, which her aunt might otherwise afford him, he checked himself, and the man proceeded in a harangue of some length, tending to give an high opinion of his abilities and of his skill in conducting causes, laying much stress on the confidence with which he was treated by Sir John Winterton Weasel, baronet, and his brother, Thomas Weasel, esquire, who seemed to have taken, from their rank, great hold on his imagination. And he at length concluded with saying, that the girl Orlando inquired after had behaved most ungratefully to his niece, Mrs. Rachel Roker, and had contemptuously refused to marry advantageously to a baronet, a man of great rank, Sir John Berkeley Belgrave, baronet, an acquaintance of his client, and very good friend Sir John Winterton Weasel, baronet, and Thomas Weasel, Esquire, his brother. Wherefore, Mrs. Rachel Roker had discarded her, and the person to whom she was bound apprentice 
was now a prisoner for debt in some of the London prisons, and this girl had left her for another service, nobody knowing whether she was gone. This account almost drove Orlando to distraction. From the man's coming himself on a message with which he had so little to do, and from several other observations he made while he was talking, it seemed as if he had some particular reason for wishing to put an end to all farther inquiry on the part of Orlando, who now, stifling his detestation, asked if he could not see Mrs. Roker, formerly Mrs. Leonard. The attorney said, no, that she was not only a great distance from London, but kept her bed, and saw nobody. In the course of these inquiries, which he now insisted upon some answer to, he found that this Roker and his nephew were employed by the reverend body of clergy to defend their right to the Rayland estate against Philip Somerive. And it was easy to see that the arrival of Orlando in England was the thing in the world these worthy gentlemen the least expected and the least wished. When this hateful being was gone, Orlando, after a moment's reflection, resolved upon visiting all those receptacles of misery in London, where poverty is punished by loss of liberty, and where, in a land eminent for its humanity, many thousands either perish or are rendered by confinement and desperation unfit to return to society, where vice and misfortune are confounded, and patient wretchedness languishes unpitied, unrelieved, unknown, while villainy shows that, if there is money to support it, it will triumph in despite of punishment. Selina knew the name of the person, Mrs. Newill, to whom Nominia had been consigned, and Orlando, making a memorandum of it in his pocket-book, with other such circumstances as might lead to a discovery, set out on his melancholy search. He had now been near a fortnight in London, and had in great measure recovered his looks, so that he was no longer a stranger to the few acquaintances he had, and his mother beheld him with satisfaction the same Orlando on whom fine figure and ingenuous countenance she had formerly so fondly prided herself. His first visit was to the Fleet Prison. He inquired of everyone likely to inform him if the person to whom he named them was there? But mistrust seemed universal in that scene of legal wretchedness, and with an heart bleeding at the thoughts of there being such complicated miseries, and that man had the power to inflict them on his fellow-creatures, he almost wished himself again amongst the cypress-swamps and the pathless woods of uncultivated America, that he might fly from the legal crimes to which such scenes were owing. When, indulging this mournful train of thought, he quitted the prison, and walked slowly up Holborn Hill. There was a crowd just before he reached St. Andrew's Church, and several coaches stood at the door of an haberdasher's shop. In his making his way by them, a female figure, very smartly and somewhat tawdrily dressed, took his arm and cried, "'Ah, sir, your name is Mr. Orlando Somerive.' "'It is indeed,' replied Orlando. "'But I do not know, madam, how I deserve the honour of your being acquainted with it.' "'What, have you forgotten me, then?' said the lady. "'Lord, how soon old acquaintances are forgot!' Orlando then thought he knew the voice, and had some recollection of the face, 
but he still hesitated, unable to remember where he had heard or seen either. "'Have you far to go?' said she, still detaining him. "'I have a carriage here, and can put you down. Lord, why, have you really forgot Betsy Richards?' Orlando now immediately recollected his former acquaintance, and what he had heard of her being entertained as a mistress by Philip occurred to him. As he had been very solicitous ever since his return to see his brother, he now eagerly inquired where he was. "'Ah, Lord!' cried the girl, shaking her head. "'I have but very so-so news to tell you about him. That's the truth. But, dear, one can't talk of them sort of things in the street. Why, I shan't bite you, sir. You may as well get into the coach with me.' Orlando, though unwilling to be seen with such a companion, yet on finding she could give him some information of his brother, determined to accept the offer. And the lady, who called herself Mistress Filmer, then ordered her carriage to advance, and Orlando, seated by himself by her, in an hired chariot with a black boy in a turban and feathers behind. Though he was persuaded nobody knew him, he was very much ashamed of the equipage, but, applying himself immediately to learn of his fair companion what he so much wished to know, he listened to her very attentively, and, after some circumlocution in a style particular to herself, he learned with an inexpressible concern that his brother Philip was a prisoner for a debt of an hundred and twenty pounds in the place he had just been visiting, and that Mrs. Filmer, though now under the protection of another person, yet retained so much recollection of her first seducer, and so much gratitude for the sums he had lavished on her, that she had that morning been to visit him, and only stopped in Holborn to make some purchases before she went to her lodgings in Charlotte Street. Orlando could not bear to hear that his unhappy brother was in such a place without going immediately to him. He stayed only, therefore, a moment longer to inquire of Mrs. Filmer if she had, when she was in the country with his brother, for they had not long before, she said, been down at Stockton's together, heard what had become of Minimia. She would have rallied him on his constancy, but he could not a moment endure to be trifled with. And finding she knew nothing of importance, he said he recollected some material business in the city, whither he must return. Then, stopping the chariot, he wished her a good day, and hastened back to the fleet prison. On inquiry for the person he wanted, he still found some difficulty in being admitted to him, but, on signifying that he was the brother to Mr. Somerive, which his resemblance to immediately confirmed, a turnkey, to whom he gave a shilling, walked before him to the apartment where a Philip was confined. On his entrance, the neglected and altered figure of his brother struck him with the deepest concern. He was sitting at a piquet with another prisoner, on a dirty table, where some empty porter-pots seemed to signify that they had just lately taken their dinner. Philip hardly looked up, and Orlando stood a moment unnoticed, till the man who was with him cried, "'Why, squire, here's your honour's brother!' "'The devil it is!' replied Philip. "'By the Lord, though, but, let me see, it is he! Why?' "'Hast had a resurrection, my honest Roland. "'Thou wert killed and scalped, I thought, by the Cherokees.' "'I almost wish I had, Philip,' answered Orlando, "'for I think I should have preferred death to what I see now. "'Why, to be sure, pleasanter sights may have been seen if a man is in luck, 
for example, it would have been pleasanter for thee to have come home master of Rayland Hall, eh, Sir Knight?' "'Good God!' exclaimed Orlando. "'Will you never, my brother, be reasonable? Will you never believe that, notwithstanding your repeated unkindness to me, I can never consider you otherwise than as my brother, and can have no motive in coming hither but to do you good?' "'And what good canst thou do me?' Canst let me out of this cage? Has brought any money from the Yankees, any plunder, my little soldier? Canst lend me the ready to pay this confounded debt? The person who was with Orlando, now supposing they might be upon business, left them together, and Philip, finding from the generous earnestness of Orlando, that though he had very little money, in fact no more than the price of his commission, which he was to receive in a few days, he was willing to pay his debt and to share with him all that he should then have left, began to grow more civil to his brother, and did not refuse to lay before him, though his pride seemed cruelly mortified as he did it, the state of his affairs. End of Volume 4, Chapter 6 Recording by Julia Lenarden.